Let me tell you the story about chicken and pig. Chicken came up with this great idea. He was feeling somewhat benevolent. He said, he said, pig, I've got this wonderful idea, this burden in my heart. I want us to do something for the community. Let's have a free breakfast for the whole community. Pig said, that sounds like a good idea. He said, well, what do you suppose we ought to serve for this free breakfast, this community-wide breakfast? And, and chicken said, well, I thought maybe bacon and eggs. He said, well... I like your heart with the matter, but he said, I don't like the menu, chicken. He said, what's wrong with my menu? He said, well, for you, eggs just takes a little bit of involvement. For me, bacon requires a full commitment of my entire life. I want to talk to you today about that because in Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that because the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, the disciples of the early church, because they had made such a complete and total investment of their lives in the gospel, they had a ministry that made a difference. Go with me, if you would, to chapter 2, the very first verse, and I'm going to start and just break it apart a few verses at a time. First of all, with verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote and said, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God, to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had been to Philippi sharing the gospel. And verse 2 tells us it was there they suffered and were spitefully mistreated. That's somewhat of an understatement, really, because we know some things from the scriptures that tell us what they endured there at Philippi. Paul and Silas had been beaten. We know they'd been thrown into prison. We know that they'd had their feet fastened into stocks and were humiliated publicly. <clears throat> we know they were flogged. We know they were stripped naked. And this without a trial, despite the fact that they were Roman citizens. And you didn't do that to a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen had rights. They were stripped of all their rights and publicly humiliated and physically tormented and beaten. Yet they didn't turn away from their calling in Christ concerning the gospel. They did leave Philippi, and when they left Philippi, they went to Thessalonica, this other city, which he's writing this letter to now, to the church there in Thessalonica. But he says that they faced even more opposition there. So it brings us to ask this question, what about their lives enabled them to have a ministry that made such a difference? What about their lives, their personal lives, caused them to have such stick to itness, to cause them to want to never give up. First of all, their full investment in the gospel made the difference. If you look there in verse 2, you're going to see the word there in the New King James Version is the word conflict. In the NIV, I think it's the word opposition. He says it was with opposition, in much opposition or in much conflict. It's the Greek word agon, A-G-O-N. It's the English word agony. That's where that word comes from. The strenuous exerting of oneself against the opposition. That's agony. And where we live, we don't face a lot of agony for the gospel. We don't face a lot of persecution. There are pockets of persecution in this country for the gospel uh, toward Christians. We know that. We understand that. And we also know that it's growing. Amen? It is growing. We can fully understand that and see it in the news. But overall, in general, we don't face such opposition like they faced when they came to Thessalonica. 
But we're never going to be void of those who want to antagonize us for our beliefs. Those who want to antagonize us for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there in that word antagonism is that word uh, agon again. They want to hinder the work and the ministry of the gospel. I don't think the church will ever be void of that. I think it's going to continue to grow. Antagonism toward you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. John McGraw was a third baseman in like the 1890s and the early 1900s. He ended up playing for the Orioles. He was known for playing dirty. As runners would round third base, he would block the base. As runners would come around, he would just stand there in the way and make them try to tag the base and get going. And as they would come past him, if no one was watching or if he thought the umpire wasn't watching, he'd take his finger and he would slip it into their belt loop and try to trip them up, stall them back just enough so they couldn't go home. Some credit him with being the main reason the Major League Baseball League added a third base umpire. And, and increase it from three umpires to four was because of people like John McGraw who played so dirty they needed somebody there to officiate and rule an umpire in the game there at third base. Jonathan Goforth was a missionary to China. When he was 70 years old, his area was closed and he was forced to stay out, forced to leave. He tried to go back five times through different areas to get back into China, but he couldn't get in. Every door that he sought was closed to his ministry. On his sixth attempt, he was granted entrance into the northwest Mancuria area. By the end of his ministry there, and by the way, he was 70 years old when he was forced to leave the first time. Now this sixth time, he's finally able to get in. He is over 70 years old, but he gets in, and it said that he reached and baptized almost a thousand converts that he reached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never gave up. Ministering for Christ will never be free from conflict. We'd like to think that it would be. We'd like to think, well, if I just get on a committee and serve the Lord, there won't be conflict. Look, we're dealing with people. There's always going to be conflict, even in the church. There shouldn't be some kinds of conflict, but there, there, there is sometimes and you work through it. You get down on your knees before the Lord, and you pray together, and you search the purpose that you're there for, and you, you determine what's God leading us to do. But sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there's conflict on the outside, pressing in toward the inside. Ministering for Christ is never free from conflict or struggle. And the reason is, the enemy is always at work trying to close doors. The enemy is always at work in his efforts to antagonize or send antagonizers your way and prevent opening doors for the gospel. But I want you to think of it like this. Just like with any contest, our success making a difference that will last greatly depends on whether or not we are fully invested in the gospel. You say, well, that's not the work that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be doing this. No, your primary work is the gospel. However, what you're doing attributes to the gospel being spread and the gospel growing, the kingdom growing. That's your purpose, growing the kingdom. It's the gospel that you need to be fully invested in. They were invested fully in the gospel. Secondly, I want you to see in this passage their pure motives with the gospel. Look with me beginning in verse 3 if you would. 
For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is our witness. Nor did we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul had been accused by some as being one of those religious charlatans, what we call a charlatan. Someone who would come in, bedazzle the people, razzle-dazzle people, great charisma, a personality that everyone just loved, and he would just manipulate a crowd. And so they had charlatans who would come in with their really with their false doctrines and try to bedazzle the people and steal away converts and create a following unto themselves. But their motives were impure. Their lives were ungodly. They were not sold out to the gospel. They were sold out to themselves and sold out with greed. That's what they were known for, charlatans. So Paul had been accused before of being a charlatan like that, that he had impure motives and was only in it for personal gain. I'd liken it to the health and wealth gospel that so many preachers of our day are preaching, living in $2 million plus homes and driving the top of the line Mercedes and owning $30 million jets, all so they can go out and, and be committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's words in chapter 2 verse 4 make a stark contrast, I think, to such religious Charlatans. He said, we did not speak with error. We preached the truth. He said, the charlatans speak in error. We're not speaking in error. He said, we were not unclean. We lived the gospel that we preach. We did not speak with deceit. We weren't trying to deceive people. We didn't have some sort of uh, other gain that we were trying to make. In fact, he says, we could have actually, as apostles, we were worthy to have your support to have you take care of us and support our ministry. We didn't do that, he said. We just kept everything clean, we kept everything separate, and we didn't deceive people. He said we didn't use flattering words. Dale Carnegie once said, flattery is telling the other person precisely what he thinks about himself. He went on to say, in preaching and ministry, many leaders want to tell people what they want to hear. It's easy to say, you're a victor. You're a child of the king, and God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's a popular message, and one that many people want to hear, but it's flattery, and it's not the true gospel, Carnegie said, and he's right. We did not come trying to please people with our message. Martin Luther says this, If I declare with the loudest voice and clearest exposition... Every portion of the Word of God except precisely the little point that the world and the devil are attacking. I'm not confessing Christ however boldly I may be or appear to be professing Christ. In other words, let's just put that in East Texas terms. If I get up here and preach what you want to hear, if I get up here and fail to preach the very thing Satan is working in and amongst the body of Christ, if I get up here and never preach on the sin that is 
prevalent within a congregation. I may come across as preaching Jesus, but I'm avoiding preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what I think of myself. The gospel must be spoken in truth, not to please people, but to please God. So nor did we come to covet or make personal gain. They could have asked for personal support. They could have asked for provision. He said, but we toiled day and night. We labored unto ourselves that we might not be a burden to you. Verse 7, I like. Well, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So he makes this comparison. We didn't come deceitfully. We didn't come with falsehood. Our motives were pure. Instead, we came in gentleness like a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Here Paul uses the imagery of a nursing mother caring for her young. But really it's a deeper, stronger expression because the Greek that Paul uses here in this verse, it doesn't, he doesn't use the common Greek word for mother, which is M-E-T-E-R, meter. He doesn't use that. Instead, he employs the word trophos, T-R-O-P-H-O-S. Trophos means wet nurse. A wet nurse is someone who comes in, is hired often, or there may be a servant in the house or whatever. They're a nanny. They come in and they are able to nurse the children themselves, even though they're not her children. They're able to nurse the baby, the young Did you know the female body can be prompted to begin milk production for nursing? That's what makes it possible for mothers who adopt to nurse. They can nurse an adopted infant. It makes it possible for a nanny, a servant, to nurse a baby that's placed in their care when the mother can't be there. And so he says here, he employs this word trophos, this wet nurse, a wet nurse like a a nanny who can nurse. And this use of a wet nurse was very common throughout the the Greco-Roman world. It was common for people to be hired to do this for a family. And ancient writers wrote of them as if they had loving, nurturing relationships with these children under their care as a wet nurse, as if those children were her own. Now that brings a greater, deeper meaning, I think, to this passage when we read that in verse 7, doesn't it? Because we can see the depth of what Paul means here. They were gentle with their message. And they made sure to nurture all of them in the gospel just as that kind of wet nurse would nourish any baby that was placed within her care without prejudice. As teachers and leaders, preachers of the gospel, servants of the gospel, we're to be truthful in all that we do. We're to have pure motives with all that we do. But we're also to be responsible to nurture everyone in the gospel. We're to nurture everyone. We're not to be in it for personal gain. We're not to be in it and show partiality for our personal children. We're not to be in it just for them alone. We're not to be in it for our grandchildren alone. We're to be in it for all whom the Lord sends to us. We're to nurture them in the gospel. We're to minister to the gospel, in the gospel to everyone. 
Only then, when we do that, is our ministry approved by God, and as Paul would say, God as witness. God knows. Let me ask you, do you have pure motives with the gospel? Do you have pure motives with the gospel? Look with me in verse 8 now. He said, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. You'd become dear to us. I was going through, uh, just had happened to start teaching through Thessalonians on Wednesday nights, a little brief, little Bible study, devotion type things. Sometimes we don't have time to, to get into that. I told the little prayer group I was praying with, I said, I'm kind of glad I'm not, that I don't have time to do Bible study because as I began to look through this one, something stood out to me and I really wanted to preach it Sunday. I think God would have me to do that. So this is actually going to work out good, I said. And it was this verse right here. When I read in this verse right here, this phrase, where he says at the end of verse 8, because you had become dear to us. I want us to see one reason that their ministry made such a difference was because their endearing friendships that they had made because of the gospel. Their endearing friendships. He said, affectionately longing for you. In other words, affectionately desiring to be around you and to see you again. That word affection is only used here in the New Testament. In Greek literature, that word is paramount to the affection. I want you to hear this, okay? That Greek word is descriptive and on the level of the affection of a parent longing for a child that has passed away. That's deep. That's heavy. Let me tell you that again. The word affection used here is only found here in the New Testament. It is paramount to the affection parents have and the longing they have for a child that has passed away. They hurt. They have a longing to hold that child again. When they see another child, they're thinking of their child. They can't help it. They don't mean to be that way. They hurt. They want that child in their presence again. They want to nurture that child again. If they just had the opportunity to nurture that child again, if that mother just had the opportunity to nurse that child that they never got to nurse if they had the opportunity to put them against the wall and mark the growth chart on the wall, see how big they're growing. They don't have that opportunity. That's the longing Paul said they had for the people of Thessalonica. That's the kind of heart we're to have for everyone. The endearment, the dear friendships that can be established through the years. Many of you have that. Many of you are growing that now. But here's the caution. It's not just for everyone who grew up in this community. 
the dear friendships are for those who need to be here. Like we say, we're here for those who aren't here yet. That's our purpose. We're here for those who aren't yet. That's our purpose in the gospel. That's our purpose as a church. To minister to one another, those within, and to reach those on the outside and to bring them in as part of God's family. That's why we're here. And that's why we have to show up in love. Amen? I was just really encouraged. John McGuire, your former pastor, uh, called me on Monday. He said, Crispin, there's a, a, a few people from the church that I'm interim at over here in Russ that uh, went to First Baptist Sunday. They were out at the East Texas Baptist Family Ministry, a property out here having a women's retreat, and, and most of them came back home. But this couple, they decided, and I think two or three of them were here, they decided to stay. I said, I met the gentleman. I didn't meet the ladies with him, but I met the gentleman and, um, before church. He said, when they got back Sunday night, they told me we felt so warmly greeted and welcomed before, during, and after the service, when we got in the car and came home, we said, our church needs more of that. We need to be more welcoming to people coming in and visiting. I pass that along because instead of spanking you today, I get to praise you, amen? I mean, how many times have I said, look, the men tend to welcome people the ladies do not, you know? I mean, it's just a fact. I get the feedback, all right? And, and, and you're, you're improving in that. And, and the tendency is to wait until the greeting time to welcome people. And I tell you this, it's too late if you waited till then. It's too late to greet a visitor if you wait till the greeting time. They don't have any reason to come back. Because you waited. You went and you sat right down in front of them. They're behind you. You're going to stand up and say, well, I guess I can greet you now that it's the greeting time. No, that doesn't work, see? And you're changing. You're, you're, you're showing up and you're loving and you're greeting people. And that was a couple. They weren't coming to join. They were just passing through. But God showed them something through you. And now I get to praise you for it. So I feel like Apostle Paul when he got to praise people for things that were going good. I feel really good today. I mean, I was on cloud nine. John McGuire was so proud. Uh, you know, he was probably strutting around all week. You know, saying, I have my former church. I have my former church. Yeah, I used to be there. You know how we are. It just really encouraged me. Why do I think that way? Because that's the difference we make in the lives of others when we show up and love rather than merely show up. There's a big difference. That's where it starts. So way to go, church. Way to go. And so I want to challenge you to have the same purpose outside the church as well. Invite visitors and newcomers. And those in the church, I, let me ask you this, okay? Now, that's not where I'm going to spank you, okay? I'm just going to pat you on the hand, slap you on the hand. When's the last time you or if you have a family or you're a couple, you invited someone over to your house or someone out to eat Whataburger or meet you in that for something that you, that's been a part here that you've never connected with before. Rather than to invite people you always tend to invite. 
That's a big challenge. Because now I'm trying to push you out of your comfort zone. When's the last time you did that? Because you say, I'm fully invested in the gospel. We've got these new people coming. We don't know if they're saved. We don't know anything about them. But when it comes time to invite somebody, to get together with somebody, we gravitate towards people we feel at ease with, not the ones who may need it the most. And the truth is, when we give an invitation here in a moment, somebody may come to be saved, some may not. Some may still be seeking in their heart and desiring in their heart. But here's the truth that I'm getting at. It's usually a one-on-one connection, conversation that takes place where people come to know Christ. That's usually where the commitments are made. And so it's, it's very uh, common for people to come to me and say after the service, I was talking to such and such and, and I led them to Christ. They said they wanted to know how to be saved. I led them to Christ. And they plan to come forward next week and, and uh, confess that publicly. And things like that. It's, somebody was coming to Sunday school and they got saved. It's usually in the smaller connection, uh, the smaller group, the one-on-one conversations that people's lives are changed because they see your faithful, full investment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you to do that. Invite visitors and newcomers into your home. Take them out for a meal. Take them out for some bluebell. Go get the bluebell. Bring them over to your house. And always remember to invite the preacher too, okay? Just invite me at the end so you've got time with them and I'll eat what's left, okay? Your personal one-on-one efforts will have the greatest impact when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. This is the responsibility of the Lord's church to agon, to agonize and strive with people concerning the gospel and to not give up, but be willing to do life together with each other. And when we fully invest ourselves in the gospel with that same kind of affection and that same kind of commitment to everyone Our ministry will be a ministry that makes a difference. And when we get, guys, when we get older, like some of our senior adults are, we will have some of the same kind of endearing, long-lasting relationships with other people that we need as younger people. And I can't really say I'm in the younger bunch anymore. Uh, I'm in my 50s, somewhere that just crosses a line, I know. But anyway, but I'm not getting all the discounts yet. Listen, you who are young... You can establish some endearing relationships. And Paul's looking back at the Thessalonians and he's saying, man, I have this this longing, this hurting in my heart to be with you. We, We were good friends. We made good friendships. You never know what fully investing yourself in the gospel and the ministry for the sake of the gospel will do. I saw on Facebook, and I've never met him. I've, I've talked with him on the phone before. It's been about a year or so ago. David Norman. Grew up in this church, right? He's a Garrisonite. He graduated from seminary yesterday with a doctorate degree from Southwestern Seminary. I, I don't know what he was like growing up here. You probably taught his Sunday school class. And you probably, you might have said, that boy's not going to make it. <laughs> and he's preaching the gospel. He's getting invitations to go places and preach and all that. So I said, hey, you want to 
come preach at First Baptist Garrison. Do you have any dates coming up soon? I was texting him, you know. And he came right back. He said, I'm going to be in Garrison on the 20th, and I'd love to. So on the 20th, David Norman can be here to preach. And uh, Rosalind's niece, Rhonda's daughter, Ashley, graduated with a degree from seminary. You never know the investment you make. It's not about degrees. I'm talking about you are birthing people for the long term through the ministry of your church. And you may not see it in the Sunday school class where you're serving right now. You may not see it with what's taking place when these little kids go out and it's your Sunday to help serve. You may not see it. You look long term. You want a ministry that will last, a ministry that will make a difference long term. And you do like Paul and Silas and the other apostles. You fully invest yourself in the ministry and you say, you know what, it's not just for these, it's for those out there and it's for everyone the Lord sends our way. Without partiality, we're going to minister in the power of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ with the gospel 